Most of these questions are directed at uh, John. They want to know how he really feels about Joel Osteen. <laughs> he did prevaricate a lot. <laughs> uh, lots of good questions. We'll try to get through as many as we can. My job is just to moderate, not to be on the panel. So this would be, you two guys will be under the gun. Although I did have a question directed specifically to me that I thought just out of courtesy I'll answer that first before we get started because it touches the very essence of everything we're concerned about. And it says, uh, RC, will Big Ben be the quarterback for the Steelers <laughs> this year? And then the second part is, can they win without him? Well, so far, Ben has not been charged with any crime. However, if he is charged, it's almost certain that he'll be suspended for a significant amount of time. And that may be the least of his problems. I know that the Pittsburgh Steeler organization is extremely displeased with him for what he's done to the image of the black and gold. And I wouldn't be surprised for the Steelers to sanction him in some way, even if he isn't charged. And uh, the question, can they win without him? Of course. <laughs> what kind of a question is that? You know, I used to tell my students, there's no such thing as a stupid question. That was a stupid question. <laughs> Dr. MacArthur, you talked about the assurance of salvation as if someone who lacks or doubts has not, has not looked forward to the next life and is concerned more with this one, how would you see assurance in the light of Calvin saying all Christians doubt and also in view of the Ordo Salutis? And we're going to pay close attention to the Ordo Salutis here. There's no messing around with the Ordo Salutis. Okay? Right? Right. We don't play with the Ordo Salutis. <laughs> when you're talking about assurance, you're not talking about anything in the Ordo Salutis to start with. You're talking about the believer's personal confidence. You're not talking about security. You're not talking about perseverance. You're not talking about the eternality of salvation. You're talking about whether or not the believer experiences that sense of that reality of salvation. And I, I agree with what Calvin said. Every believer doubts at, at points in life, and uh, uh, th those doubts um, may come and go in every believer's life. They may be stronger in, in one person's life than in another. They, they may be related to circumstances. They may be related to personality kinds of things. Some people are naturally more doubtful and more melancholy or whatever. But all I was saying was that Peter gives testimony to the fact that the testing of faith produces assurance because then you know your faith will stand. Um, you, you, I, I can only tell you from the standpoint of looking back over my life, my faith is stronger now than it's ever been because it has stood every test. When, when, when you have the largest disappointments that you could possibly have in life, when they come in and tell you your wife has broken her neck and fractured C2 and C3, and your son has a tumor, and those kinds of experiences, the, there was absolutely the, the opposite of what you might expect in faith. Faith was elevated immediately. There was a 
great grace poured out, strengthening of faith, the strength. I found myself when they told me that my wife was uh, airlifted after a fractured neck and I didn't know all the details. I sang hymns all the way to the hospital. I can't explain that other than to say that I don't have a human faith, the same kind of faith I have when I drink a glass of water out of the tap. This is supernatural kind of thing. And I think that when I'm talking about assurance, I'm talking about the, the, the development of enough evidences in life of trials in which faith literally grows and is strengthened that diminishes the times of doubt and, and, and gives you a greater and greater assurance. All I was saying was that sometimes when persons lack assurance, it's because they haven't suffered enough to have a tested faith. And that tested faith is what, is what assures the believer. That's Peter's whole point there. Okay. Abraham is going to slay his son. How is that a good thing? I would be thrown in jail for doing the same thing. Mike? Wow. Um, answer this with, only, with fear and trembling. Now that's an allusion to Kierkegaard, and how did Kierkegaard answer it in fear and trembling? God is basically uh, able to do anything that He wants to do, or even beyond that, his, his will is unhinged from His nature. God can decide to do anything. And, of course, we believe God can't decide to do every, anything. God can only decide to do that which His nature delights in. And uh, it can't be… So, so, right at the outset, we can't say that God commanded something that was evil. Uh, the fact of the matter is that not only did God spare Isaac and spare Abraham from having to sacrifice his son, but He sent His own son at His own expense uh, to be the, uh, the Savior of sinners. So, not only… Uh, there's always a danger in trying to figure out the problem of evil philosophically, to resolve it philosophically so that we're okay with it, rather than realizing that God has solved it historically at the cross. That's where we see exactly what Abraham's almost sacrifice of Isaac foreshadowed, what it foreshadows. And there, uh, God's justice and God's mercy are completely reconciled, but you never could have figured that out until it happened. That's the way, and it's, a, it's an unfolding plot. You know, in, in theology, uh, when we talk about the law of God, we make a distinction between the natural law of God and the purposive law of God. <clears throat> and when, when I talk about the natural law of God, we're not talking about natural law. That's a different question. But we're talking about those laws that come from God that are rooted and grounded in His nature, as, which, as you just said. And there's nothing that could ever abrogate that law. There's no circumstance conceivable that would be a good thing to worship an idol, okay? And if God permitted that now, where He forbade it in the Old Testament, He would be going against His own nature. But the purposive law has those laws that had, in history, as you're pointing out, 
a particular purpose, like the kosher laws of uh, dietary laws of Israel, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament would have been a sin to disobey them. It would be a sin to reinstitute them because there was a historical purpose behind them. Now, the question you have to ask is, is the prohibition of killing a human being based on the nature of God, or is that a purposive law? If it's a purposive law, he could suspend it at any time for his own holy purpose, which he did at that time. He had every right to require the death of Isaac. He didn't owe that life to Abraham. And Abraham, it's like the policeman on the street, when the red light is red and the cop's on the corner and he waves you through, you, you obey the cop rather than the light. And if God gives you a direct command, then you're responsible to carry it out, which is what Abraham tried to do. But that's, you know, that's asking for special revelation like we don't get. Yeah, I think an, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the book of Acts where the apostles responded to the leaders of Israel, do we obey God or man? God always trumps man. But I think the bigger issue would be, uh, does God have the right then to command the death of anyone? Uh, God didn't just tell Abraham to kill Isaac. God told all the Israelites to completely obliterate the Canaanites. Uh, the truth of the matter is that no man has a right to live, take one more breath. Since the soul that sins shall die and the wages of sin is death, the fact that we even take another breath is is God suspending the just punishment. Exactly. So at any point that God would command the death for anyone, that would be within the frame of his righteousness and his holiness and his justice to, to bring that to pass. It, it is that God shows himself to be a God of grace. He's a savior of all men temporally and physically, especially of believers spiritually and eternally. But I think he puts his grace on display by not giving the sinner what the sinner deserves in the moment the sinner deserves it. So any suspension of capital punishment to any believer born in, any unbeliever born into the world is a pure act of God's common grace extended to man. So what he asked Abraham to do in taking a life would be perfectly within his right because Isaac was a sinner and deserved the same thing the Canaanites deserved or anybody else deserved. Good job, John. If Here's one now. This one is here's a there's one good one for you. You know, I love it when I hear questions that I've never heard before in my whole life, which is you know, we we've been listening to the same questions for 50 years and well at least I have, you have. But <laughs> And when you get a new one, it's really exciting. So, John, you'll like this cuz you have never heard this one before. If Samson was to never touch a dead body, How's come he killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey? <laughs> Bet you never heard that one before. No, I never heard that one before. I'm not sure I needed to hear it now. <laughs> Are you saying he violated his Nazarite vow by picking up the jawbone? Well, that's what the, apparently is what is being. It's an, it didn't even take a Nazarite vow to uh, be uh, defiled by coming no, in touch I know. with I that understand body. That. Yeah. But, you know, he was pretty accustomed to breaking every imaginable <laughs> vow. <laughs> yeah, this was not anything new for him. Can we make a distinction between a body that is in the state of uh, decomposition and decay 
that is unclean ceremonially. You mean how long the donkey was dead? Yeah. Well, it's a jawbone. He's obviously it's a skeletal form now. And the, <laughs> no, he's not doing well at all. Uh, even, even Billy Crystal couldn't raise him from the dead. He wasn't just almost dead. He was, he was long gone. Yeah. All of the decay and corruption of the, de- the rottenness of decomposition is all done with. Okay, if that makes you feel better, we'll go with it. Nice, good for me. <laughs> what do you think, Mike? Please comment on the concept of seeker-sensitive. Who seeks whom in the process of salvation? And how does contemporary American evangelism tend to get it right or wrong? Well, I think uh, there's there's only one true seeker, um, and that's God. And that's why Jesus said He had come to seek and save the lost. Uh, John 6, our Lord said, no, no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. So God is the true seeker. And uh, Romans 3 says, no man seeks after God uh, naturally. And yet you have to include Old Testament, if you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. That's the prompted heart that God has moved in his direction that responds uh, but, but I think um, we, we often say in our church there's only one seeker who shows up every Sunday here, and that's God who seeks those um, whom He has chosen as love gifts to His Son, and He's the true seeker. I think it's an illusion to think that men are running around seeking God on their own I think they're seeking the kind of stuff that shows up in the prosperity gospel and in the kind of American evangelicalism that's so highly successful, all the temporal things, all the things that are connected to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, uh, which is all a part of fallen flesh. But uh, the, the sinner does not seek the true and living God. Thomas Aquinas was asked that question once, and uh, he said <clears throat> that people look around and they see unbelievers seeking desperately the things that we know only God can give them. Yes. Forgiveness, peace of mind, reconciliation, all the benefits that we only can get from Christ. And he said, but we mistake that people seeking the benefits that only God can give them from actually seeking God. The sinner wants the benefits without God. All the while, the metaphor of the Bible is that we're fleeing from God. We're fugitives from God. We're hiding from God while at the same time wanting all of those benefits. And this has radical uh, implications, though. And, you know, we've seen a revolution in worship in America designed on the basis of designing worship for the unbeliever. He's an unbeliever, but he's seeking, Right? I mean, that's ghastly. Since when do you design worship to please unbelievers rather than to please the living God? And I'm all all for evangelism and all of that, but the purpose of the assembling together of the saints on the Sabbath day is not primarily evangelism, Mm -hmm. 
but for the offering of worship by the people of God to God. And then as soon as we start designing worship for something else, we've departed from the biblical uh, model. I think. Yeah, I think the trend is to, uh, to let the, the world design it for you. Yeah. yeah. Here's a question specifically addressed to Dr. Michael Horton, who's professor is a J. Gresham Mason Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, Escondido. You ready? You mentioned, yes you did, Michael, the names of some well-known persons in our society who were born and raised up in evangelical and fundamentalist homes yet they are now either don't believe in God or even anti-God. You know, that's not an either-or there. If they don't believe in God, they are anti-God. Let's get that straight. I wonder what some of the reasons would be that caused this, and what remedy do we have? Why did that happen? Why does it happen so often? Well, doubtless a whole variety of reasons that uh, the the two of you would know better than I, having spent uh, more years uh, <laughs> on earth. Wait. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. Um, no, I, 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 that's one of the things that, things that fascinates me looking at for all of the difference and all of the different reasons people uh, were in bad churches while people were in bad families, and uh, they managed to sort of stay together. But the more church becomes voluntary, the more you don't have to hang out with these people who have hurt you or what have you. People are going to get wounded in any family, and that's true in the church, but I think Sometimes a lot of people, okay, there's, there's some people who really have been victims in their church. They've been victims of uh, really horrible preaching, teaching, uh, heavy-handed discipline, and, and so forth. They really haven't understood the gospel. I think a lot of people just wander away, and it's because it's not really addressing their, their crucial questions. According to one study, 60%, there, I've seen one that goes up to 80, but I don't, I, uh, I'll go with a lower one, that 60% of those raised in, an, in evangelical Christian homes, 60% will be unchurched by their sophomore year in college. And I look at that and I think, you can see that, frankly, with a lot of the Enlightenment leaders who were raised in pietist homes where it was all about the heart, not doctrine. And then eventually they said, well, we don't really want the heart much either. A lot of the founders of Protestant liberalism, of course, were raised in pietism. And I think a lot of today's liberals, I think of Brian McLaren and a whole bunch of people on the emergent side of things, they all grew up in megachurch, uh, sort of Willow Creek-oriented uh, uh, environments. And it's just this, this, this downplay, deeds, not creeds. Have you heard that before? Well, 
That's Immanuel Kant. This has been over and over and over again, and he got it from his pietist upbringing. So I think that the downgrading of doctrine and the significance of doctrine is there. And you look at the way a lot of, a lot of young people today have never really grown up in the church. You say, what are you talking about? I've been a Christian all my life. Well, tell me about your Christian background, your upbringing. They have nothing like morning and evening worship services that they go to in their past. Well, what do you mean? No, I went to church. Well, no, you went to the parking lot. Then you went to the youth group. I'm not against youth groups, but it's like really the nursery, the youth group, and then inner varsity or campus crusade in college, and then you wonder why they don't join a church. They, they never have joined a church. They've never been a part of it. So I think we've got to incorporate people from the earliest ages into the life of the communion of saints that they are baptized into. But we also have to remember that none of them were born Christians. And uh, there's a whole lot of reasons just that they just never were converted. Right. They could have been in, in wonderful families and wonderful yeah, churches and absolutely. still not be converted. Yeah. Or they could have been abused, and that happens, and it really does happen. You know, when, you, when we get a question like this, I think of one guy who, who was a Jew, and his family uh, were devout in their practice of Judaism. His father was a businessman, and he moved his family to another town. And in this town, the majority of the, of the uh, merchants were Lutheran. So this guy took his family and joined the Lutheran church, clearly for economic reasons, not for spiritual reasons. And this, and this young fellow saw that, and he said, all religion's about is economics. And Karl Marx was very bitter about what his father did when he joined the Lutheran Church and made him join the Lutheran Church. So they see that. I mean, people see that. So even though they're unconverted, they're, uh, uh, they're exacerbated by being wounded this way and that way. There's thousands of illustrations. But the second part of the question is, what do you do about it? Well, you just do what the church is always supposed to do, you preach the gospel. I think, I think what, what, what you're saying is what John says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out from us that it might be made manifest they never were of us. Uh, from the human viewpoint, you, you nail it, hypocrisy is deadly to a young person, legalism, a stranglehold on the external with no real change in the heart. Uh, superficial gospel, uh, I think a low view of God. I, I think, you know, I, I, without being heavy-handed, I think if you have a balanced presentation of the attributes of God and the glory of Christ, somebody might walk away from it, but they would have a harder time becoming a public critic of it because they would be attacking the majesty and the beauty and the glory and the full understanding of God. So I think if one of the reasons in the years I've been here, 40-plus years, 25 of those years we've been going through one of the four Gospels, and it's Christ every week, Christ every week, Christ every week, every week. And if you're going to walk away and you're going to condemn this church, you're going to condemn the, the glory of Christ that dominates this church. That's a little harder to do than to condemn all the people sitting in the pews. 
So I think it does relate to the message from the human view, but from the divine perspective, they go because they never really were a part of us. All right, well, here's another question and with the statement, please, please answer. <laughs> Why hasn't anything been said about the spiritual formation movement? We've heard all these other ones. Please address this, main people, Richard Foster, Dallas Willard, and uh, both edited the Renovari Study Bible, which says Genesis is made up of myths and traditions. Uh, Dallas Willard says, quote, you do not have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ to be saved. And the church is immersed in this sort of thing today. What do you think about it? Well, there are, <clears throat> there are seminaries that have been evangelical and Christian colleges that have evangelical testimonies and histories that have started departments in spiritual formation and sucked and drunk all the Kool-Aid that's coming out of these guys. Uh, and, and I personally, having read Dallas Willard and, and there are many others, you know, they go back um, a long way, I, I have no real assurance that any of these people are Christians. I mean, I would go that far. I mean, there's a statement that sounds to me like a statement from somebody who doesn't understand salvation. Uh, but while the language is, is, is there, I, I, I just I have no confidence that there's a real understanding of the, the real understanding of the doctrine of salvation with these people. Way too much intuition, way too much experiential stuff. Um, but what amazes me is how it has literally become a department in traditionally evangelical environments, spiritual formation, and it's mystical, and it's intuitive, and it's experiential, and it's tied to these kinds of things that, um, that I think disappointed Christians pursue as if there's some secret knowledge. It goes back to that deeper life, Keswick um, kind of approach. Yeah, I... Uh just recently, I had, hadn't read them before, but I, I did recently for this uh, book, Follow-Up to Gospel-Driven Life on the Great Commission. And uh, you know, the part of their, their, their concern is that there isn't uh, sufficient discipleship going on in the churches, the way they interpret discipleship. But they're, they're very clear about it. Discipleship for them doesn't mean being a part of and uh, it doesn't revolve around, it doesn't center on being part of a local body of Christ. It centers on you going inward, doing things by yourself, going inside of yourself. Uh, and then the methods have absolutely nothing to do with the ones that Jesus commanded, which are all communal, preaching the gospel, baptizing, teaching them everything uh, that I've commanded you. That, that's all something that creates a community. It's not something I take over to the corner. As Martin Luther said, read the Bible by yourself in a corner and you'll, every man will go to hell in his own way. Now, this is a guy who wanted everybody to read the Bible. But he said, you don't read the Bible by yourself. You've got to read it with the communion of saints. And uh, I, I'm just uh, very concerned that this is a shift back to medieval spirituality and there's a strong criticism of the Reformation 
uh, tradition among these folks. Many of them are Quakers, Methodists, uh, and, uh, and Anabaptists. And so there's a history of antagonism toward the Reformation stream and being a little closer to the mystical medieval system there. And, uh, I mean, Arminianism just, I think, makes sense within a medieval spiritual uh, set of practices. But it's fundamentally different from the Reformation approach to faith and life. A lot more that could be said, but... Thank you. There's another question. Many exhort that millions are dying apart from Christ and that we must therefore urgently reach them. But doesn't this conflict with John 6, quote, all that the Father has given me will come to me? Yeah, well, the only way they'll come is by hearing the gospel. So, you know, we're not supposed to figure out, like Spurgeon said, you don't pull up a shirt and see if people have an E stamped on their back. You, you know, the, the mandate is clear. We go, we go into the, into the world and, and we preach the gospel to every creature. The secret decree of God is, is known only to Him. Our responsibility is obedience, and no one is going to come to salvation apart from the truth. First Peter 2, again, as I mentioned earlier, we're, or 1, we're, we're begotten again by the word of truth. Faith comes by hearing uh, the, the word concerning Christ. Uh, how will they hear if there's not a preacher? Uh, how will there be a preacher if the preacher's not sent? And, and the responsibility of the church, of course, is to send the preachers. That's the method that God has chosen. Um, no gospel, no salvation. So that the, the work that we do is a, is not, it's not the primary cause. It, it's simply a means that the Lord has determined to use the preaching of the, of the gospel, and that is our responsibility across the face of the earth in every generation of the church. There's a trend today of conservative Bible teaching churches trying to, quote, take the good uh, from secular movements and using their methods without compromising the message. Take the method without compromising the message. How does that work? Badly. The… <laughs> Well, here, I mean, here's, here's the thing. There, there is, this, is this almost Gnostic assumption that the body and the soul are disconnected. And it's simply not, not the case. Our practices form our beliefs as much as our beliefs form our practices. Uh, you know, we're… Uh, um, uh, you, can't, you can't glue an Arminian view of how you bring people to faith and nurture them in, the, in that faith to a, a, a set of convictions that are basically inimical to Arminianism. And that's what a lot of people are trying to do. Give him credit. Charles Finney was consistent. He was a lot more consistent than, than a lot of us are. Uh, he, he said, look, there, no original sin People are not born innately depraved. Uh, they can regenerate themselves if they believe. No substitutionary atonement, no justification. Therefore, our goal is to find, these are his words, excitements sufficient to induce repentance. And then he found them. And there aren't any methods that you find in the Bible 
But that's okay because he knows that he can find efficient methods. And now a lot of, a lot of people say, we just jettisoned, I left it out of my notes, but I, I had it in there, quotes from uh, Tony Jones from the Emergent Movement who says, we just jettisoned the magisterial sermon from our services. And the Bible now becomes a conversation partner in a group as we have our conversations. I think, it's a Quaker meeting. That's not new. That's been tried. And it's, you know, your inner light pulled ignorance. Let's all just sit around and share our inner light instead of having the word expounded and explained. So, uh, I mean, you can't, if you believe that the power is in the gospel and it has to be preached and taught and expounded, and you believe in baptism and the Lord's Supper as means of grace, if you believe that, it is impossible to take the methods of the church growth movement or any of these other movements of pragmatism and consumerism and staple them onto that. I'll wait a little bit. That applause was far uh, too mild. I've been thinking a lot about a... uh, a passage here in, in Mark 4, uh, I, I just, this is really, this is a whole section, uh, Jesus Magna Carta on evangelism, and he says, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows, how he himself doesn't know. So that is my mandate for evangelism, so and go to bed. <laughs> I am not in charge of the results. And you say, well, you'd be more effective if you had a, if you had a designer seed bag. Really? So I need to get a designer seed bag. Is that the idea? And you'd be a lot more effective if you had a T-shirt while you're sewing that had a skull and crossbones on it because that would really communicate to the dead, um, blind, um, ignorant uh, people cut off from the life of God if you, if you just had that T-shirt on. Or if you could just back up your sewing with rock and roll music, that would really make an impact. I mean, what kind of ridiculous stuff is that? The bottom line is in the parable of the sower earlier, he says a sower went out to sow. That is all that is said about a sower and he went out to sow seed. All it says about the sower is he went and sowed. All it says about the seed is he he threw seed. The rest of the parable is all about the state of the heart. It's not the skill of the sower, and the seed is set. It's the condition of the heart. Now, if, if you're under the illusion that Finney was under, that you can change the heart, then you're worried about all of that cultural uh, accoutrements that you want to embellish, and you think that has an impact. It wouldn't matter what the seed bag looked like. It wouldn't matter what the the surrounding situation was like, all that really matters is the seed that is fixed and set in the Word of God. The seed is the Word of God, it says in the account of the parable in Matthew. That's all we need to know. The power is in the Word. We sow the seed, it goes into the ground, it does what it does. We don't know even how it does it. The soil produces crop, and it uses the Greek word automate. It, it produces automatically. It's a divine automatic. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. And when the crop's ready, he puts in a sickle and the harvest. 
It's, it's almost like 1 Corinthians 3. Somebody sows, somebody waters, and boom, here comes the increase. Now, if you're under any kind of illusion that anything matters but the sowing of the seed, then you don't understand how this really operates. It's a divine miracle. It's and not only just a God question can of not understanding it. We, the church doesn't believe it, John. No, they don't believe it. They don't really believe it. And the, un- the unbelief like, of this is widespread. Absolutely. When I preached or when I spoke at your uh, graduation a couple years ago and preached from Luther's last sermon before he died, Luther starts that sermon by saying, what a fine gospel we have. Yeah. And then he goes on in his last sermon to talk about how people are running to Trier and other places to, for the relics to find Joseph's pants and uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. Because they think that they can find power somewhere better than in the gospel. Because that's why they do it. I mean, and, and it's the same thing in our churches today. We're, we're just not chasing after Joseph's pants, but we're still looking for ways to improve the gospel. A more powerful church is grown by every means possible except the one God's ordained. He's put the power in the Word. And it's through the preaching of the Word that He has decided He's going to save the world. And we can't improve on that. But we can deprove on that and depart from that. And that's what we're seeing in a grand scale right now. But here's another one. Can God regret and wish like God regretted making man, making Saul king, and uh, Jesus said, you know, will lament over Jerusalem, how often I would gather you as a hen gathered chicks, but you would not. You know, it's like he's saying, I wish you would, but you won't. Uh, I think you ought to answer that. That is right in your it wheelhouse. Is, it is a kind of R.C. That's an R.C. Sproul question. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I wrote it. We do have these passages in, in the Bible where it speaks of God's uh, repenting of having done this or having done that or ruining it or regretting it. Uh, and a whole theology has sprung up in recent years over that, this whole open theism heresy, which denies <clears throat> the omniscience of God and that God just didn't know how what was going to happen, and he can't know what human beings are going to do, and so he has not only a plan A, but a plan B. If plan A doesn't work, then he'll throw away plan A and try plan B, regret the mistakes that he made the first time. What a dreadful doctrine of God this is. Wow. Talk about open blasphemy is what that is all over the place. But you can't get away from the fact that the Bible does use that language. Now, two things I want to say. We have throughout Scripture anthropomorphisms and anthropopassionisms. That is, where human, where God is described in human forms or in human terms. The Bible tells us that God has a strong right arm, and He uses the earth as His footstool. But we know when we read those texts that that's metaphorical language, and it doesn't mean that we're to interpret it that God really has a right arm because He's a spirit. 
And it doesn't really mean that he has long legs and he stretches out and uses the earth as his footstool. But nevertheless, that kind of language is used. This is one of the principles that Calvin spoke of when he talked about that God addresses us as a, an adult addresses a baby by lisping and communicates to us in human terms and human, because that's the only terms we know. We don't have any other point of reference. But at the same time, as we find this kind of language, particularly in the narratives of Scripture, we have in the didactic portions of Scripture the clear warnings not to take these statements as if they were univocal uh, statements uh, comprehensively defining the, the character of God. For example, we're told God is not a man that he should repent, even though the Bible uses that human language in narrative saying that God repents, then we're reminded this is just a metaphorical manner of speech because God, being God, is incapable of repentance for many reasons. First of all, he has nothing to repent of because he's perfectly holy. Second of all, repentance involves a change, and he is immutable. Third of all, repentance or regret implies that he made some kind of a mistake, at least in judgment, which would throw a, uh, a, a cloud over his omniscience. So just about every uh, attribute of God is compromised if you take those terms univocally. May I throw in something from First Samuel? Throw it right in here. We'll knock okay. it right out of the park. <laughs> a great example of what you're talking about is First Samuel 15, where in verse 10 we read, the, Lord of the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. And then over to uh, verse 29, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And... Uh, how do, you, how do you reconcile the Well, by realizing that this is, this is a story, and as you say, God is speaking baby talk. He is making Himself haveable, you know, putting Himself within our reach, within our grasp, by expressing Himself in this way. And from a human perspective, it would have looked like God repented. But then the same narrative says… I'm not a man that I should repent. So it. And I think the extremity of it, um, when when God does that, it's it's a, a way of saying the worst that could possibly be said about this person or this situation is I wish it had never happened. Like Judas, I wish it doesn't say it that way, but it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Well, who's in charge of that? But the implication in all of those situations, to us, that would be a human way to, to express regret. I wish that had never happened. I wish that person had never lived. I, that would be a human way at the most extreme level. You know, you, that's more extreme than saying, you know, I'm sorry they turned out the way they are. Uh, to say, I wish that person had never been born. I, I wish that nation had never come along. What happened to that city of Jerusalem is, is tragic, et cetera, et cetera, beyond words. So I think that is the extreme way to demonstrate God's disappointment with someone's behavior.
but it doesn't mean that in actuality, as you've already heard, that God is winding his way through circumstances and, and correcting his judgment as he goes. Here's another one. If God has a general love for all people, when does he start hating people? Or is that from the beginning? No, this is a good question because, uh, you know, one of the banes of our preaching today is the, the minister stands on television there in his pulpit and says, God loves you unconditionally. How in the world does the pagan interpret that statement? Well, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to repent. I don't need Christ. I don't need an atonement. There are no strings attached. God loves me unconditionally. Unconditional love is what I enjoy from God, you know? So we've got to talk about the love of God and how does the Bible ever say that God hates people besides e Esau? Does, does not God in sacred scripture say that he abhors the wicked? He hates them. So how do, you, how do you reconcile that with the love of God? It says he's angry with the wicked every day. Psalms, angry with the wicked every day. I think uh, all, of, all of God's attributes operate in full at all times so that God can love and hate at the same time. I think we would understand that. Um, we, we would understand that there are two sides to us. There are things that we love so much we hate everything that's opposite that or opposes that. But I, but I think the way to understand God's love is that it's manifest in common grace. Um, God's love is, um, I think, expressed by Christ in Matthew 5 where he says, love your, your enemies. And, and be the sons of your father. Uh, walk in love, Ephesians 5, and demonstrate that you're the sons of God. Uh, God loves with common grace. The sun uh, shines on the just and the unjust. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The unregenerate wake up and smell the coffee and watch the sun rise and fall in love and have children and enjoy uh, the richness of life and the, and the bounty of, of this world. That's, that's one aspect of God's love. The common love, the, the general love, I think the opposite, uh, I mean the other side might be gospel opportunity uh, is extended, preach the gospel to every creature. They're given the opportunity to hear and, uh, and to believe. Um, all of those aspects of the withholding of judgment, that's, that's an evidence of God's love. Uh, he grieves over Jerusalem. He finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Those are all aspects of that. But as far as the iniquity that is part of their lives and the, the guilt that they bear for that iniquity, God has to hate that because he's a holy God. When you move to believers, I think the best language is in John 13 where he says he loves them, ice telos. He loves them to the finish, to the end, to the max. It's the same language that speaks of eternally. He looked at the disciples and, and it says of him he loved them, ice telos, to the limit. That's another kind of love. It's kind of love. It's celebrated in Ezekiel 16, where after describing the horrors of Israel, he says, you're the people of the covenant, and, and pours out a final note of love on them. But I think when the sinner does not respond to the grace that is offered, when the goodness and kindness of God doesn't lead the sinner to repentance, then hate takes over. At, at what point 
that happens. Maybe Pharaoh's an illustration of that. Uh, he hardens his heart, he hardens his heart, God hardens his heart, if, if, if you can see any kind of distinction there. In systematic theology, you know, we have the right to make distinctions. That's our stock and trade. And when we talk about the love of God, we distinguish among three types, which you have just done biblically. We talk about His benevolence, His love of benevolence, bene volente, His good will towards all man. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You say His basic disposition is positively uh, one of kindness toward a fallen world. And secondly, His love of beneficence is His good deeds, which you described in terms of His common grace, the rain falling upon the just and on the unjust. If I could just stop you to say one thing. The greatest illustration of common grace, I think, was the healing ministry of Jesus, which was totally indiscriminate. That's right. And then we talk about the love of, of complacency. And there the term complacency doesn't mean what it means in our contemporary uses of it being smug and all of that. But it has to do with that special love that he has for his son and through his son to those who are indwelt by his son, who are in his son, that, that, that is that love that goes to the ages. Uh, but we don't have that. We have almost a, a romantic view of God that God loves everybody in terms of the love of complacency in the salvific sense uh, unconditionally. That's not true. And that's a false message that we, we give. Here's a practical question, although they're all practical. If you're in a position of leadership in a church that preaches man-centered sermons or shallow sermons, is it okay to leave that church, even though you have a sort of influence among the congregation? This is a question we get all the time. When is it okay to leave a church, or when is it necessary to leave a church? Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's not necessary, but okay. Sometimes it's not okay. How, how do you counsel people about that? Uh, the first thing I tell people about is the seven churches of Revelation. If you happen to live in Laodicea, there was only one church. If you happen to live in Sardis, there was only one church. If you lived in Pergamos and Smyrna, there was one church. And um, our Lord commends those in those churches that had some deep problems, so deep that He even told them if they continued in the direction they were going, He would disown them. And, but he commends those who haven't soiled their garments. Uh, I, th I think you have to look at your options. And, and if you're in a situation where there are problems and issues, but, but you don't really have an alternative, I think the, there's understanding with the Lord with regard to that. And there may be some good done and accomplished. But if you have an option and an alternative to go from a church that dishonors the Lord to a church that honors the Lord, I don't think that's a tough decision. I think you need to go where the gospel is proclaimed, Christ is exalted, where church is really functioning uh, in a biblical way, if you have that option. Um, I, I encourage people, speak to the leadership, go directly to the leadership, express your concerns, um, see if there's any interest in change or repentance. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't think you, you want to tear the thing to shreds. I don't think there's any virtue in that. That, that. that sort of unsays everything that you're trying to say about doing things that honor the Lord. 
uh, I think you have to, you know, maybe, maybe God will write Ichabod on the church. Maybe the Lord will fight against that church, but that's his battle to fight, not yours. But I do think you are, as a believer, responsible for your own spiritual development and growth, and you need to put yourself in the place where that is maximally going to happen. And I think if you have alternatives, you need to take those alternatives. I agree with that. I mean, you know, often people leave over trivial matters, and they shouldn't because there's this community that's a covenant community that you're in, yeah. and you don't leave over every peccadilla. But if your soul is in, in, in jeopardy sure. and your family's, yeah. you've got to run for your life. And, you, and that's a good point that you make. People leave for the most ridiculous, stupid reasons. Uh, first of all, they don't want to join a church to start with. I am a strong advocate of church membership. That, that's a real battle today. You understand that. Most, many of these independent churches, take the whole Calvary Chapel movement. They don't believe in doctrinal statements or church membership or church boards. Uh, people are just floating in and floating out. You, you don't have any real identification. You don't know who you're shepherding. We, we, uh, we deal with that all the time because we practice church discipline. So the question always comes up, this person is a member of the church. Who, who are these non-member people that float in and out, and what is exactly our responsibility toward them? Uh, pe- people want to consider all their options. So like, like you said, you put on somebody's playlist, and you'll find out what church they go to by the music. I, I wish that God would just shut the music down for about six months, and then we'd find out who went where. And the truth would really be revealed um, as to what people uh, are after. But I do think there's just way too much of this personal offense stuff or it isn't the style I like and, and people migrating around to their own spiritual detriment. This one for Dr. MacArthur. And regarding miracles and answers to prayer, how does Matthew 17:20 and John 14:13? I'm not asking you because you're the only guy up here who's going to know what those references are. <laughs> Stop me if I'm lying, Mike. <laughs> How does Matthew 17, 20 and John 14, 13 fit into prosperity Christianity? Well, let's just, let's just take John 14, 13 and 14. Uh, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse says to the disciples, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Um, that, is a, that is a promise. Uh, obviously, our faith can move mountains. Our faith can, can, is a factor, is, is, is a part, a component in, in, in the things that God does. Uh, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, as James says. But, but I think the key in John 14, 13, and 14 is that phrase, if you ask anything in my name, um, I think if you know anything about the use of names in Scripture, you understand that that's the cons- consistent with who He is, and being consistent with who He is is being consistent with what He wills and what He plans and what He purposes. So our Lord is simply saying, anything you pray consistent with my will, I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And I, You know, the essence of prayer is lining up my life with the purposes of God. And if I don't pray, God's going to do what He's going to do. I believe that. But I'm not going to be able to give Him glory to the degree that I would if I was engaged in praying in the direction that God was working. So I think it simply gives us the opportunity to glorify God, to honor God when our prayers are poured out to Him 
within the framework of His purposes, and as those purposes unfold, we are able to give Him glory because we've been a part of the process in our prayers. We have to be careful that we don't have a simplistic treatment to isolated texts. You have to read the whole teaching of Christ with respect to prayer. If any two of you agree on any one thing in my name, it shall be done for you. Now, how many of you would like to see the war in Iraq end tonight? Mm-hmm. We got more than two here in agreement. How many would like to see a total cure for cancer tonight? Can we agree on that? Obviously, that was not the point. No, that's not even talking about prayer. It's talking about church discipline and two or three witnesses in a discipline situation. But that doesn't stop people from, you know, context doesn't mean much to those people. Well, our time is up for this. We still have some questions, but we still have more Q&A time coming up, don't we, Chris? What do we do now? First, th- first thing we do is thank you all for your uh, contributions. <laughs>